Leonard R. of Grouse Point, Michigan. Hi, everybody. Hi. You wonderful, wonderful Southern AAs. I was introduced to uh, Southern Alcoholics Anonymous at Mont Eagle about uh, three or four months ago. We in Michigan are, are sober, and we in Michigan are happy, but you in the South are headed for serenity like gangbusters. <laughs> I've seen you, you alcoholics, and your wives, and your husbands, and your children. And I don't know what you have, but for God's sake, don't lose it. Uh, I brought some notes up here because I'm getting older and my, my memory isn't as good as it used to be. In fact, it's so bad of late that when I'm chasing women, I catch them and forget what I was chasing them for. <laughs> get there, don't worry. <laughs> I can't resist telling you this story before we get serious about this. There were two Negro alcoholics in a bar, and uh, like all alcoholics, they didn't know each other, but they started drinking and started talking. And the one said to the other, he said, uh, where do you live? He said, I live on Archer Street. He said, do you? He said, yeah. He said, what number on Archer Street do you live? Well, he said, I live 541. He said, 541? He said, what floor? He said, the fourth floor. He said, what apartment number? He said, 12. He said, Lord, today we are husband-in-laws. at dinner we were talking about uh, uh, why non-alcoholics can't project the AA picture and why non-alcoholics are unable to help alcoholics. Non-alcoholics don't understand this, but alcoholics are able to communicate with alcoholics. That's where this horrible loneliness comes in with an alcoholic who is drinking. He has no one with whom to communicate. He can't communicate with a sober alcoholic. He doesn't want to. And he can't communicate with a non-alcoholic because it's an impossibility. It, it is quite difficult for anyone, whether alcoholic or not, to project the love and the understanding that one alcoholic has for another. Uh, one lady at dinner, and she shall remain anonymous, said, how could we explain to the outside world, as it were, how we can stand around and laugh now about pushing our mother-in-law down the stairs six years ago? <laughs> and this would be difficult. Uh, anytime I leave home to, to talk any place, my wife always says, tell them about the turkey. Uh, 
being an alcoholic, I wanted to be a man of distinction always, and uh, I didn't drink Calvert, so I wanted to do something else. So, back in the days when you couldn't buy frozen turkeys, I always had a turkey dinner in July to impress my friends. And this one July, uh, we had our turkey dinner arranged with about six or seven couples coming over. And I went downtown in the early morning to get the turkey. And I put the turkey under my arm and stopped in to have a little drink. And I had the bartender put the turkey in the refrigerator and I had another little drink. And then I took my turkey and I got in the cab and I went to the next bar. Well, to make a long story short, I finally sent the turkey home in a cab and stayed at the last bar. <laughs> my friends were all there and they enjoyed the dinner. And I know it was trying for my wife, and it was pathetic at that time. But now we can laugh about it. It's, it's really funny, and my wife thinks that's the funniest thing that ever happened to her. The only thing is, I wish I had a picture of her when I came home that next morning. Uh, I think that the alcoholic who comes to AA quickly realizes that we're here not to judge, but to understand. And the minute he realizes that, then the communication between the sober alcoholic and the alcoholic looking for help starts to take place. The machinery starts to work. And that moves me into what I'd really like to talk about tonight, because the 12 steps are my life. Without them, I would not be here. I am an alcoholic. I have drunk more than some of you less than others. I doubt if there's anybody in the room that's done any more than I've done because if, they're, if they came in one year later than I did, they wouldn't be alive to be here, so it wouldn't make much difference. But I like to think of the steps in the phases, the four phases which categorize the steps, which put them in a perspective where we can use them when we need them. And the four phases are the admission phase and the spiritual phase and the inventory and restitution phase and the active phase. The admission phase is covered by step one. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. This is an old cliche, but it is also an old truth. And that's a misnomer because there are no old truths. A truth a thousand years ago is a truth now. They don't have to redesign it like they do automobiles or clothes. And this truth is, and it's a Chinese one, that a thousand mile journey starts with a single step. The journey taken by an alcoholic who takes the first step is much longer than a thousand miles. It can be a lifetime and a lifetime of happiness when taken. But there is no compromise with the first step in Alcoholics Anonymous. You either take it or you don't take it. You either want to give up drinking or you don't want to give up drinking. 
It's that simple. This program is simple, but it's difficult. You know, speaking of the first step, I was sitting at the first step table about four months ago. And the woman had been in A about three days. She was a sad sack. <laughs> and she was trying, trying to grasp onto what little dignity she had left. So the monitor at the table said, are there any questions? And in trying to grasp this dignity, and I don't think she could turn her head, she was across the table from me, so she looked right at me. And she said, do you inherit alcoholism? And I thought, why did she ask me this? But I looked back and I had to answer and I said, yes, I'm quite sure you do. I inherited mine from my mother-in-law. <laughs> if a man will take, or woman, uh, will take this first step, it, it will open the doors to vistas they never dreamed existed. It will bring happiness to, to untold numbers of people. It won't do away with all your troubles. I doubt if there's a single person in this room who isn't faced with some problem tonight. But the reason we can smile is that we know we're not going to circumvent that problem. We know we're going to face it squarely and that we're going to do something about it. We're either going to learn to live with it or we're going to learn to whip it or we're going to learn, and in most instances, that no problem exists at all except in our own mind. If this is all, if this is all I ever got out of AA, thank God I found AA. The spiritual phase of this program covers steps 2, 3, 5, 6, 7, and 11. Step 2 came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I like the saying, and uh, I don't know where it came from or, or its origin, but I like this, he came, he came to, and he came to believe. To me, it is beauty. It is the most beautiful verbiage I have ever heard. This step is a tremendous step toward maturity. At last we recognize there is someone greater than ourselves. What is maturity? Well, when we are born, we are dependent completely. When we reach adolescence, we are independent. We need no one. And I don't know whether it was your problem, but it was mine. I went from adolescence into drinking and never made the transition. I was completely independent of my family and all those about me. As I look back now, I didn't know my mother and father. I'm told they were wonderful people by others, but I, I just... Uh, I don't know, because I didn't know them. I was completely independent. I didn't reach the interdependent stage. 
and the interdependent stage, which is considered maturity, is the stage where you need me and I need you. This is the communal thing. This is the thing upon which counties and cities and states and countries are built. And if we had no mature men and women in the country, what a hell of a place it would be to live in. It's just, it's... And when an alcoholic accepts God and is willing to ask for his help, he is approaching this maturity. And he's approaching humility. I don't know how humility feels. I recognize it in other people. And I've been told many times that as soon as I know I have become humble, I have just lost my humility. Humility is the foundation of all virtue, all virtue. And pride is the foundation of all vice. You hear a man say, I'm, uh, uh, I'm getting along fine in this program. I blow my top all the time, but I'm blowing your top is caused by pride. And pride is the basis for all vice. So how am I getting along fine in this program when I'm becoming angry? When I hate two people instead of ten, uh, this all comes from pride. It's just like the guys you see who are drinking better. <laughs> you know them. You know them. I knew a drunken woman that was sponsoring a drunken milkman, and if you ever saw a drunken mess, <laughs> they were both doing better. I don't know where they are now, if they're alive. <laughs> I heard them say it so much that I became angry, but it was a just anger. Because I felt they were affecting newer people in the program around them. So, unless you can tackle this pride, I don't know how you tackle humility. I can't tell you anything about that. But I'm an expert on pride. And if you don't know, the word expert comes from two Latin words. X meaning has been, and spurt meaning squirt. <laughs> In this program, there's only one way you can grow after you take the first step and, and obtain sobriety. And that's spiritually. There's no other way to grow. Just It's an impossibility to grow in this program unless you grow spiritually. They say there are no atheists in foxholes. And forgive me if there's a so-called atheist in the room, but there are no sober, alcoholic atheists either. And there's some question by theologians whether there's even such a thing as an atheist. They think he's a phony trying to stay away from God for fear he might be influenced well. Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand him. 
This means we're willing to drop the reins. I used to get off the wagon and pick up the weight, but this means you drop the reins. You don't drive it anymore. This means that we've learned to believe in the efficacy of prayer. This means that we believe in the mercy and the understanding of God. How many times have you heard an alcoholic say, I'm not ready to ask for God's help? What awful pride. What horrible egotism. Here is a poor, drunken mortal who isn't... He's going to determine when God shall help him. He's going to determine when the time is right. And I've heard it a thousand times over. He is questioning the wisdom and the mercy of God. He is refusing to fully acknowledge his creator. He doesn't want help then. He's like I used to be. Leave me a couple of little things left, you know, just a couple. Just to hang on to from the old life. But it, it, it just doesn't work. The fifth admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. This becomes a problem many times to uh, alcoholics. They confuse the nature of the wrong with the commission, with the act. And the wrong might well be omission and not commission. The nature of our wrongs might be something that we are not doing that we should be doing. So don't look for something that you're doing bad as the nature of your wrong. Because you may miss the greater part of your wrongs. The nature of the wrong is the, is the, it was explained to me by a poor, almost illiterate man one time, and it hit me like a bolt out of the blue. I had difficulty with this, understanding it. And the English language is such that you've seen two men talking together, saying the same thing, and arguing their heads off. So this can happen in AA. This thing can be explained. That's why repetition in this program is... Uh, excuse me, Joe. I want to hope that. That's why repetition in this program is excellent. Because the verbiage used might explain it to me and the man next to me might not understand it or vice versa. And it may take a hundred different people explaining a given step before a man or woman understands it. And that's why this repetition is good. This man said at the table one night, I've stolen from a thousand people, but that isn't important. The important thing is that I now know that I am a thief. That's all he needed to know. Not how many times he stole, not how much he stole, or from whom he stole. But he had realized finally that he was a thief. And that was one of his shortcomings, and that was something that he had to correct. 
But don't forget the omission. As an alcoholic, I was more guilty of things that I didn't do, I believe, than things I did. I didn't do the things I should have done for my children. I didn't do the things I should have done for my wife. I didn't do the things I should have done for my mother and my father and my brothers. I didn't do the things I should have done for my employers. I didn't do the things I should have done for my friends. So my list carried many, many, many omissions. Seven, we humbly ask him to remove all our shortcomings. That's what I was talking about a moment ago. I always wanted to hang on to a couple of them, you know? <laughs> I had a lot of them I could get rid of. I had them, I don't know, it just happened. The others were on purpose. I wanted to keep them the ones that were on purpose and get rid of the others. But you can't do that. You see, as you go along in this program, this road becomes narrower. The things that I could accept six months ago are not acceptable to me now. And I'm quite sure that some things that are acceptable to me now will not be acceptable to me six months hence. So the road becomes narrower, but it's a pleasant narrowness. And you can live within it freely and happily. You don't remove shortcomings overnight. You didn't gain them overnight, and you can't remove them that quickly. And you can't remove them without replacing them with something else. You must replace hate with love. You just can't get rid of hate. You end up with a vacuum. And you must remember that love begets love, and hate begets hate. My wife has changed since I... <laughs> <laughs> since I came into it you don't change anybody you know that you just adjust to them and in your adjusting to them they they, they they change not in their attitudes toward you but they are realizing some of the happiness you have gained in this program that's the change that takes place it's the adjustment that you make this is the toughest thing for me on earth to do in business Especially, and it's not right, especially if a man is working for me. I want to change him. I want him to be like me. I don't know why, but of course all. Instead of adjusting to this person, I want to change him. You can't change anybody. You're not God. And make up your mind to it. A little fellow once told me, if you want to like somebody, no matter how much you despise them, pick five things about them that you like. How they comb their hair, that isn't applicable to me. <laughs> Anything. How they tie their tie, their carriage, just five things. And dwell on them every time you see that person, and you will learn to love that person. And if you want to go even further and see this great change take place in this person that doesn't take place, that you don't like, pray for him. Ask God to help him wherever he might need it and see what a wonderful person he has always been 
and to you he has now become. And the eleventh step, sought through prayer and meditation, to improve our conscious contact with God as we understand him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. We've learned to communicate with each other. Now we must learn to communicate with God. You know, alcoholics are great talkers, but when you communicate with God, it's not all talk. You've got to listen, son. Another great sign of maturity in a person is when a man or woman can make a decision, live with it, and accept the results no matter what. In other words, make that decision asking God for his help. Live with it, and whatever the answer or the results may be, accept God's will. That's true maturity. Who knows better? Who knows better what is right for us than he who brought us here? And I am a firm believer that nobody, nobody stumbled into AA. If we only knew how heaven was stormed, was stormed with prayers for us, by people we hardly knew, maybe, by our families and by our friends. That's how we got here. And that's why we better stay here. Because those people who stormed heaven may not be around to storm it again for us and get us back. The inventory and the restitution phase cover steps four, eight, nine, and ten. Four made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Now, unless we know ourselves, it's, it's, it's quite impossible for us to correct anything in ourselves that, that isn't compatible with, with being a, a sober, happy alcoholic. Everyone, I believe, is three persons in one. Maybe that's not a fair statement. I was three persons in one. I was the person I thought I was. I was the person other people thought I was. And I was the person I really was. And when we take a fearless moral inventory, we take it to find out the person we really are. And in my case, it wasn't a very pleasant thing to find out that I wasn't the hale, hearty, well-met, lovable guy that I thought I was, but a stinking, lousy, ingrate and a bum who took advantage of everybody that came his way. When I first came into AA, I was quite sure that I never injured anybody with my drinking. Just think of this. And I used to talk about it. I don't know what some of those old-timers thought. They probably thought, well, this guy's a psycho. Just let him go. <laughs> never injured anybody. 
Yet my son was flunking in school, and when I came into AA, he became an A student. I mean, just think of this. I am told, I have a very good friend in the uh, Detroit public school system who is a, a psychiatrist and, and heads a department that that deals with uh, children who have problems. I'm not talking about delinquency. I'm talking about children who are apparently capable, who can't pass, and that sort of thing. And I was amazed when she told me that when in two weeks the average teacher in the Detroit school system can recognize the son or daughter of an alcoholic and know nothing about the parents, because the children suffer the same loneliness and the same fears that the alcoholic father or mother suffer. If you want this brought home to you, think back on how many kids played in your backyard when you were drinking, or whether they played down the street because your child just didn't want them to see their drunken father or their drunken mother. So it was, it, it's been brought home to me so many, many times how much my drinking affected other people. Yet I actually thought, I used to say that I'm an unusual alcoholic. I have never been arrested for drinking. I have never been hospitalized. I used to say this on, right up on the podium. I have never been hospitalized for drinking. I have never lost a job because of drink. And drinking has only affected my life. I didn't tell them about the number of times I came home and my wife got sedatives and fruit juices and everything else and I stayed in bed for four days. Well, I got, well, you can't get that kind of treatment in the hospital. I didn't tell them my father was commissioner of all police and firemen and I couldn't get arrested. This is the end of side one. I didn't tell them I quit the jobs before they fired me. An alcoholic drinking affects untold numbers of people. His drinking affects his wife. His wife's concern affects her mother. Her mother's concern affects her father. Her father's concern affects the people for whom he works or with whom he works or those who work for him. His concern affects them. Their concern... This thing goes on and on and on and on. I don't know how many people were affected by my drinking. It's the biggest problem in industry today. It's the biggest problem in the Army and the Navy and the Marines today. What else we got? It's the biggest problem, period. And there aren't that many drunks. It's the effect of it. It's this snowballing effect that takes place by one alcoholic drinking. It affects so many people.
and causes so much sorrow and so much pathos. Made a list of all persons we had harmed, this is step eight, and became willing to make amends to them all. I have yet to apologize to a saloon keeper, and let me tell you why. I sent more saloon keepers to Florida than you can shake a stick at. Well, I'm up in that stinking Detroit freezing to death. So they don't get my apology. I didn't hurt them. I helped them. They took my money no matter how drunk I was as long as I had it. When I ran out, I heard him. <laughs> the people that are hit hardest are the families. The ones we love most are the ones that are hit hardest with this thing. Those are the ones we hurt. The line of demarcation between love and hate is so minute. that it can shift one way or the other just uh, by, by any impetus you can think of. And that's what we did to our wives and our husbands and our children. Those are the ones we hurt. And our very sobriety, if it's based on the proper things, if it's based on love and understanding, and I'm talking about love and understanding of our fellow men, if it's based on that, then we will make amends to our family. I have a closely knit, lovable family now. I have four grandchildren. You think I got old, huh? That's why I'm losing my memory. I got four grandchildren. Lovely. I really enjoyed them. I didn't enjoy my son. He almost grew up without me. Uh, I traveled and drank and drank and traveled. I mean, you know, so... But he has four lovely children, and, and I'm enjoying them. And my, I got sober before my daughter was well enough along to suffer too much from it. So I don't know whether I've made amends, but I know that we're happy. I know that our home now is the center of influence for everything. I know that's where I like to be all the time. And I just thought before it was a joint to sleep in when you quit sleeping in those other joints. You know. The ninth step may direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. This step just about speaks for itself. If uh, I, I don't know of an example of this step where in making amends, you might injure some. I've made some amends. I, uh, I was sent to college by a very wealthy man. <coughs> and I turned against him after I left college. And well, I'll tell you the whole story. He owned a baseball club. I formerly was a sports announcer. I did baseball, football, and the like. 
And I had uh, a sports program, one of these 15-minute deals on commentary. And I don't know what made me turn against this man, but I took him apart every time I went on the air. He and his ball club. And I just chewed at him and chewed at him and chewed at him. And he would even call me on the phone and said, I don't know why you're doing this to me. And I didn't know either, really. But I was drinking and... Uh, I had the idea. I had the idea that... that if you wanted to be successful in the business I was in, you picked out that big guy and start shooting at him. And it's surprising how many people enjoyed it. I mean, they were sadists just like I was. So after I came into AA, I had left the city where I was broadcasting. I wrote him a letter, and I put no return address on it and offered my apologies and told him that I didn't know why I had done it and I, I didn't know how to make amends for it. There was no way to retract all the horrible things I had said about him. But at least I told him that I was wrong. Number 10, it says, continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted. This is, a, this is a must. This is something that we must do daily. My inventory, for the most part, is uh, before I go to bed at night, I, I ask myself, what did I contribute to my fellow man today? Because I'm still fearful of that omission part of it. It's always in the back of my mind. So I ask myself, what did I contribute to my fellow man today? And if I can't come up with anything, I, I, I've omitted a lot of things. Because a smile, the most inexpensive things for some reason or other are the most effective. A smile, a kind word, a thoughtful small deed for someone, a recognition of somebody else's shortcomings, and a feeling of... of understanding for them, a feeling of compassion. You see, this program is not only applicable to alcoholic to alcoholic. This is applicable to everyone. We must have compassion for people who are not alcoholics, who have problems. What about the man or woman who has all these shortcomings and, and doesn't know where to go to rid themselves of it. They deserve our compassion. They deserve our understanding. And that's why every day at some time we must take an accounting of ourselves for that day to see whether or not we have truly lived this program. It is most, most essential. The active phase of the program is the twelfth step. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to other alcoholics and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. This means that we must live this program. We can't come to an AA meeting and get all filled up with this wonderful old AA and throw it in the wastebasket on the way out. 
because we're not going to need it until next Thursday. No. That won't work. These Thursdays to Thursday or Tuesday to Tuesday, AAs don't last very long. There's got to be some in between. You know, there's Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. There's Saturday, Sunday, Monday. You know, you, you've got to... This thing is a daily thing. It's, it's just as daily as the fact that we must, we must face, or rather that we must face the fact that every day that we're an alcoholic, we must face it every single solitary day. That is our problem. That is our cross to bear, if you please. And we can bear it pleasantly if each day we recognize that we are an alcoholic. And if we recognize that at one time our lives were unmanageable and that at still another time they could become unmanageable again. This is a constant thing. This is a life. This is a life that you and I must lead and live. And we must live it daily. Another thing we must do and it's vital that we do it. it, is that we must give this away. We must give it away in order to retain it. Does anybody have cause to argue with the statement that in giving we shall receive? Nothing is more important in this program than to give. We must spend our life doing it if we intend to maintain and sustain this sobriety that we now love so well. I think it would be well to remember that change, and that is what we are constantly after, is change change for the better. I think it would be well to remember that change can be accomplished most of all through prayer. Because with God all things are possible. And as my old Irish grandmother used to say, may the dear Lord keep you all in the palm of his hand. Thank you.